Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, an exploration of the weekly Torah portion with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or comment or share it with a friend. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. This week we've reached what I like to call the Shrek portion of the Torah because there's a talking donkey. The parsha is called Balak, and Balak is the king of Moab. The Israelites are wandering their way through the desert toward the promised land. And as they're getting close to the end of that journey, they reach Moab, which is a country on the east bank of the Jordan River in what today is Jordan. Balak is the king of Moab, who's afraid of this mass of Israelites coming his way and hires a prophet named Bil'am to curse the Israelites. What follows is a scene worthy of any Saturday morning cartoon. Balaam doesn't want to go, God tells him not to go, he eventually caves to the pressure, and while he's en route, his donkey refuses to budge. So Balaam starts to hit his donkey, at which point the donkey opens its mouth and says to him, Stop hitting me. There's an angel of God blocking my way. Ultimately, Balaam does make his way to the Israelite camp, and overlooking the camp, he tries to curse the Israelites, but instead, all he can get out is a blessing. Ma tovu ohalecha Yaakov, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. With all that as background, we're going to be talking today to Rabbi Karen Thomashow. So let's welcome her to the program. We'll introduce her, and then we'll talk about the Parsha. So Rabbi Karen Thomashow, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to get a chance to talk with you today. We've known each other a long time. We were rabbinical school classmates. We were colleagues when you were here in Toronto, which is how many years ago did you leave now? Eight years ago. I'm still angry at you for that, by the way. (laughs) You're welcome to be. (laughs) (laughs) And you today are one of the rabbis at Isaac M. Wise Temple in Cincinnati. Uh, So we'll talk at the end more about you and your approach to Judaism, but for now, let's talk about the Parsha. We're reading Balak this week, and you said to me that you wanted to talk about divining and miracles and donkeys. So let's talk about all that. Terrific. I'll tell you, Micah, if you don't mind, a news story from two weeks ago in Massachusetts. So um, you'll recall that that's where I'm originally from. And um, there was a story which actually, I believe, made uh, national headlines. So it may be familiar to all of our guests and listeners, which is that there was a man on a boat ride. I don't know what type of trip he was on with um, a couple of other individuals. And at some point he was in the water and he got scooped up by a whale. Did you hear of this? I did. That was amazing. It was amazing. And so that alone, you know, there were congregants of mine, surely of yours who were sending articles saying, oh, this would make an amazing sermon. Obviously, it was so Jonah-esque. But actually, wasn't the article itself or the news story that got my attention as much as what happened a few days later, which is there was a suggestion that this individual made up the story Hmm. because the doctors in the ER claim that if the story went as he said, which you may recall, he got almost like swallowed, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like, like literally he got like scooped into his mouth down his like insides. And then he eventually got like tossed out. But the 
ER doc said that there should have been evidence of like the bends or something else that you would get that I probably don't know enough about, uh, like a term of the oxygenation of your blood um, if he had been swallowed. And they said, because there was no evidence of that, this individual is likely telling a story. Now, the reason it caught my attention is the reporter who told the story went on to say that there were witnesses. So it is probably likely that he was swallowed. In addition, he was in a very small plane crash in, I don't know, Costa Rica or Venezuela, and he survived it. And no one believed that he was in this because he walked away and everyone else was either injured or died. Mm. And then they did some investigation and it turned out that miraculously he survived that particular instance. And so he's like a miracle man. He's, he is. And it's funny. I would never say that about anyone. I'm not the person who sees, you know, a face in a toaster with respect to those who do. But I must say, I was thinking so much about this Parsha. Like, what does it mean to have something happen that really defies both nature, our understanding of faith and God? Right, because this Parsha does have what seems like supernatural things happening, right? This donkey that can see things that the human can't see. It sees this angel. It has a sense that God is trying to stop this journey from happening. Right, exactly. In fact, God uh, put words into um, the donkey's mouth. And it's just um, absolutely wild. I mean, just absolutely wild. Yeah, so... What do you think then that this kind of story is doing here? I, I can't imagine ancient people read this story and thought, maybe donkeys really talk. They lived in the real world. They knew donkeys, in fact, probably better than we do. So why do you think then that we have this kind of comedic talking donkey story in, in the Torah? I think two things, and then I'd love to hear what you think. First, I think parables have always been helpful tools and here, like God's almost like using or creating this parable or something. But um, I also think that it has to be so wild to get the attention of Balaam. Balaam, I think in some ways I feel badly for him because he in this Parsha is being used, if you will, both by Balak for his own uh, difficult or evil ends and of destroying and, the Israelites. Correct, right? And to um and to curse them so that they end up being weak against the potential army that Balak thinks he's going to need to deploy against the these uh you know mighty people or numerous people, right? A la Pharaoh calling the people too numerous uh, at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Then Balaam becomes the mouthpiece or Balaam becomes the uh, the means to God's end of having the, according to the Torah, of having the Israelites be blessed and not cursed. So Balaam is, in some ways, he's he's not his own person. In fact, we're introduced to Balaam. We know him as a kind of a prophet for hire. That is his job, essentially. And so he's he he is the mouthpiece of of others. First, as you say, of Balak, of this king of the Moabites, and then ultimately of God. So he gets to be, in some ways, a conduit for both evil and then ultimately a conduit for blessing and the blessing of Matovu, which we sing Correct. traditionally every single morning, comes from this Parsha. So ultimately, Balaam is the mouthpiece of this gorgeous blessing of the Israelites of their holy spaces and of their holy and of their holy camp. 
but in some way that none of that is him, right? He's strictly a conduit. And to me, that's actually so antithetical to Judaism because Judaism, at least as we know it, we don't exactly have conduits to God. We believe that everybody can access their own blessing. And certainly we have rabbis. You and I are both rabbis and our, but our job is not to bless people per se, but rather to, I guess, help people achieve their own blessing, right? To help people yeah, or perform lift up their own. God's blessing, I think is one of our responsibilities. You know, one of the things that you're raising here is what does it mean then if this is so unusual in the narrative of the Torah, what does it mean to have someone be this mouthpiece? And honestly, I think that this is something that we struggle with today. I was having a conversation just this morning um, about a young child at a camp that my son goes to who was saying really nasty things to other people. And I was talking to my son about how sometimes people say nasty things because they're not confident themselves because they are deflecting their own hatred or anger or whatnot. Uh, not the same case here, except that I think that sometimes people try to get other people <laughs> to say bad things. It's not just Balak saying to Balaam, oh, I want you to curse someone. Okay, that's an ancient example, but we could give examples all the time of people who are, who are pressured into, in politics, in um, in a in a in a familial or a friend's situation at a camp, right? We have times where people are pressured, even in the workplace. I want you to do this. I want you to say this to someone else when it's not necessarily of our own doing. Now that's on the negative side. And maybe by looking at this, we say, look how ridiculous that ends up. If you are told by someone else to do something bad, look what's going to happen. You're going to have a donkey come into your face and start talking because <laughs> your world is going to be turned upside down. That's not right. Even right? the donkey knows this is not authentic behavior on That's your part. That's exactly. That's foolishness, okay, to try to get someone else to do some terrible bidding. But on the opposite end, maybe Matovu is okay. Maybe it's okay to inspire other people to do good deeds, right? Maybe it's inspire it's okay to encourage other people to say good things, to bless other people. And so that's a tension here, I think, in this story between when do we actually employ people to do our bidding poorly and when do we employ people to do good in the world? And how do we as individuals then find our own sense of values yes. in a world where not all of our actions are our own choices or is one of the one of the lessons of of Balak that ultimately Bilam cannot be successful until his actions and his words match with his own values oh that's awesome he didn't want to go on this journey right he didn't right. want to curse the people he didn't want to do what Balak wanted him and in the end all Bilam could really say was what he really felt which was this blessing rather than the curse are you suggesting that Matovu is his authentic voice that's a good question. Maybe. Matovu is God talking through him. And yet, I think we get a sense from the very beginning that Balaam is not looking to curse this people. So maybe Matovu, maybe maybe this blessing that we say every morning actually is the authentic voice of this man who was looking to bless, even though he was outwardly trying to, mm -hmm. trying to curse. All right, I'm going to cut it off there because we're over our seven minutes. But for those of you who can stick around, there's a lot more conversation, both about the Parsha and also about Rabbi Tomashow and her life and her rabbinate. We'll tell you about the very famous rabbi who had a fist fight on the bima with their own congregational president. It was not our guest. 
But before that, one final thought. I want to encourage you, a la this portion, to think about your own authentic voice. What are the things that you do and say in this world that are authentically you? And what are the things that are not? What are the things where the donkey would stop you and say, cut it out, this isn't really you? And how can we strive in this life to be our most authentic selves, the best versions of ourselves? I think that's a good question to ponder. And we'll see you next week. It's also really interesting what the blessing turns out to be. Like, um, how good are your tents, right? It's, it's your community, right? Your community. I mean, it's your physical dwelling place, but I think it's mm, symbolic of the people, right? Like, like, wow, your people, your community is, is really good. It's, it's Tov. Right. That the goodness of a, of a place, the goodness of an, an Ohel, which is a tent or a Mishkan, which is a dwelling place is actually on about what goes on inside that yes. place. It's about the relationships between the people. And I think we both know how much I was going to say Judaism is about relationships, but actually it turns out life is about relationships, That's right. right? That's what we thrive when our relationships are strong and we thrive when I think we're getting goodness from, from connection with others. And I can't help but think about COVID. I really, I think what a community does during all of its times, both times of crisis, times of confusion and times of health are telling as to the endurance and the goodness within of a community. And I think many of our synagogues have been very strong places of connection and community during this time. Yeah, and maybe ultimately we've what we've learned is that to dwell together, as this portion talks about, doesn't have to be to physically be together. It means to build relationships. And we can do that in a virtual space. It's not as good as being together, That's but right. it can be done. That's right. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, there's another, if you don't mind my mentioning one other article, there was another beautiful article um, that I've uh, shared with some of our leadership um, in my community uh, by a rabbi, a colleague of ours in the reform movement, Rabbi Josh Davidson, who uh, is at um, Temple Emanuel. He's the senior rabbi uh, in New York City. And they had a host of conversations during the pandemic, maybe six or seven months in, uh, asking their own membership, gee, what have we learned here as a specific Jewish congregation? And there were many beautiful answers, but the number one answer to me is my number one, is that now we understand what it means to be isolated. We've always had members of our congregation who are isolated, but we didn't fully appreciate that each of us because thankfully we haven't all been isolated before, but in the pandemic, there were spots when we were absolutely isolated. And so the importance of the, of the community and of the congregation reaching out beyond our walls is, is more critical than ever in my mind. I think it's a call to Bikor um, Cholim to uh, caring for for everyone in the community who's in need uh, going forward. Yeah, I love that. Right, we should say Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov for everyone in our community. Mm -hmm. And think of everyone as being in need of that kind of healing. Exactly. So let me ask you a few other questions, if you don't mind. Okay. So you are, as we said before, you are one of the rabbis at Isaac M. Wise temple, which I know is a historical congregation. Will you tell us really briefly yes. I mean, who he is and what's special about this place? 
absolutely. Um, the congregation was founded in 1842. It is not the oldest congregation in Cincinnati, but rather the second oldest. The oldest is uh, Rockdale Temple, which uh, was founded in 1824, and they carry the distinction of being the oldest congregation west of the Allegheny Mountain region. But for us in 1842, we were founded as Kila Kadosha B'nai Yishurun, and it was uh, only uh, a decade later, if you will, that um, Isaac Mayer Wise uh, was recruited. Um, I shouldn't actually say necessarily recruited. He was a, a candidate for the position of rabbi of the congregation, and he had just concluded a tenure of his first position in Albany, New York, which ended on a negative note, and he was looking for a position in another congregation. So and we should point out, um, Isaac Mayer Wise is considered in many ways the founder of Reform Judaism, or one of the important founding fathers of Reform Judaism in, in the United, United States. States. Correct. And so you may know more about this than I do. You implied that there was a negative ending. I've heard he had a fist fight on the Bima with the congregational president during the high holidays in Albany. During right? the Torah service, exactly. That is correct. And um, the sheriff was uh, called in. And it's interesting because the reason for that fight was that um, Rabbi Wise had actually been let go of the congregation before Rosh Hashanah. So he was no longer the rabbi of the congregation. However, after that um, incident, uh, he did form somewhat of a community that gathered in his home and in a few other places. But it's interesting, he was someone, even though that story is true about fisticuffs on the Bima during Rosh Hashanah, he actually did not like conflict and avoided it at all costs throughout his life. He was much more interested in unity. And so he came to Isaac M. Wise Temple, obviously it wasn't called that until after his death, um, but he came to Kila Kedoshai B'nai Yishirun asking for a life contract. He did not want to fight uh, with the leadership in the future. He wanted to have confidence that he could uh, finish his rabbinic tenure here, perhaps. And so he did uh, get awarded a life contract here, and he remained here um, until his death in 1900. And the congregation uh, was really proud of him and his innovations. And it was really here in Cincinnati uh, under um, his leadership that he founded the Hebrew Union College, uh, our first rabbinical seminary in the United States. He also founded the CCAR, the Central Conference for American Rabbis, a number of years after founding, of course, the rabbinical um, school. And he also uh, founded the um, American uh, Union of American Hebrew Congregations, which we now know as the Union for Reform Judaism. And in addition to a number of periodicals, newspapers, and um, even there was an effort for a uh, non-denominational college uh, in Cincinnati. He was really a uh, visionary. Yeah, those are, I mean, those are the institutions of Reform Judaism. They weren't intended necessarily to be only Reform institutions at the time. Not initially, they, yes, correct. Yeah, so those are big shoes to fill as a, as a rabbi. Do you well, feel that? I'm, <laughs> I'm so fortunate that I don't think of myself as um, filling anyone's shoes but my own, <laughs> or else perhaps I would feel that way. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, it does feel like a privilege to be a rabbi at what we call um, a legacy institution. 
uh, with such a profound history. And um, and I, I I love studying the history. I have uh, pictures of Isaac Mayerwise all over my office. I have um, all, I really collect uh, things and I'll just say one more thing about it if anyone's ever interested. I took a sabbatical last year for one month, thanks to the generosity of our board of directors, excuse me, trustees. And in that sabbatical, I went to the American Jewish Archives here in Cincinnati on the Hebrew Union College campus. And I actually read the seven novellas that Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise wrote and published in the American Israelite. And it's so, so interesting. He was a man of many, many talents, including wow. journalism and literature. Interesting. I didn't know any of that. Yep. So <laughs> y you've been in this congregation for a number of years. What what do you love about the work that you do as a rabbi? I have some varied interests actually um, from both adult education to sermon writing to young family engagement. Those are um, like my bailiwicks, I know we'd say in Canada uh, here in um, my position. And yet I also love the breadth of the rabbinate, the life cycle, um, the breadth of both age and, um, and uh, stage, as well as other rabbinic duties. I, I think if I had to name like the top one, it would be um, sermon processes, but I like it all. Me too. I actually, I, I understand that enjoying that breadth and, be, and, and enjoying building relationships in a Jewish yeah. context over time yeah. with um, with a number of congregants. In your own personal Jewish life, is there one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful? Such a great question. I have a hard time answering that question because I would tell you one day that I love the mikvah with conversion candidates and I just find it so powerful and holy. And other days I would say to you, that it's the the ritual of uh, pilgrimage on the Chagim to synagogue, especially uh, on the highest holy days of our year of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I'm very moved by that as a ritual of returning. Some people actually see it as the opposite, but I, I find it moving that our people are um, are so called to gather. Back to our conversation earlier. Um, on one uh, one season of the year in particular. It's interesting. The two rituals you just mentioned in some ways could not be more different. Mikvah mm -hmm. is the most individual, the most personal <laughs> ritual. And the High Holy Days is the day that you're there with everybody. So that's the whole gamut of Jewish <laughs> life there. A to Z, as you would say. That is what we say here in Canada. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite Jewish holiday? My favorite Jewish holiday is probably Pesach. How come? I say probably because I um, I love it and um, I have always wondered um, if my saying I love it means that I have to love matzah, which I don't, but I, I love freedom and I love redemption. <laughs> I understand. I'm not sure anybody loves matzah. Actually, I take that back. <laughs> my grandparents ate matzah even when it wasn't Pesach. I don't understand Oh, yes. It. I know those. I know those folks. Yeah. Uh, all right. One last question, because I know you're teaching a class in five minutes. Thank you. <laughs> what book do we all need to read? Awesome question. You know, I'm going to give an interesting answer. I really think we all need to read American Judaism by Jonathan Sarna. 
And I, I, you know, I'll tell you why I say that, because I think that the modern Jewish experience in the United States is just too fascinating for us not to spend time on. I don't even think we appreciate the uniqueness of our position as Jews in the United States, both creatively, both um, sociologically speaking, uh, both um, in terms of influence and the larger society. I just, I go back to that book all the time. And I love what Jonathan Sarna says uh, when he teaches about his book, he says, I called it American Judaism and not Jews in America because there is a unique Judaism known as American Judaism. It's so interesting unique here. Yeah, what a gem and um, and a great recommendation. And one of these days we'll have this conversation again and we'll talk about the, the differences between American and Canadian Judaism because you and oh I have both gosh, lived in both that. countries. And yeah. if you want to talk about, you know, from mikvah to Rosh Hashanah, we, we can talk about the reform movement from Toronto to Cincinnati. It's basically A to Z. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, the 401 to the 75. There you go. <laughs> That's our book, Karen, you and I, the, the, the 401, 401 to the 75. <laughs> you know what, Micah, don't tempt me. We should do it. All right, I'm in. Well, Rabbi Karen Tomashow, thank you for your time. It's been really a pleasure getting to catch up with thank you today. Thank you, Micah. Rabbi Micah Streifer, the <laughs> smartest classmate at HUC. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm going to leave that in. You should totally leave it in. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Well, that's our interview with Rabbi Karen Tomashow. I'll pay her later for that compliment. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here again next week. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.